everybody, welcome back to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival. We are now on week three of our series on birds of the Bible. Have you ever been to Panola Mountain State Park? It's southeast of Atlanta, off of I-20 in south, uh, sort of south DeKalb County. It's a brilliant, beautiful place. The mountain itself, Panola Mountain, rises several hundred feet above the Piedmont and is joined by two other so-called monadnocks. Ever heard of monadnocks before? On the east side of Atlanta, a monadnock is basically an exposed, for us, granite hill uh, formed of solidified magma. So Arabia Mountain and Stone Mountain are two other examples of monadnocks here in the East Atlanta area. Uh, they were left over, left over from the formation of the Blue Ridge Mountains sometime between 300 and 350 million years ago. I encourage you to visit. In a remote corner of Panola Mountain State Park lies a field. This field is carefully managed for birds by the Department of Natural Resources, Georgia Audubon, and other groups. It is transected by a power line corridor and embraced by the South River. This field is the home to a stunning variety of avian life. I have come across many lifers. Lifer is what we birders call, the first time you see a bird, you call it your lifer. I have come across many lifers in this field, including the American kestrel, little guy called the yellow-breasted chat, orchard oriole, Savannah Sparrow and others. A wetland lies on the eastern edge of the field and in the summers it hosts an abundance of blue herons and green herons and great egrets and the occasional night heron. The field itself is probably my favorite birding spot in all of Metro Atlanta. Year round it swirls with light and life. But just over there, beyond the wetland, in the far eastern edge of the field, shadows roost. Upon a stand of three or four dying trees, way over there sits a large wake of black vultures. They sit and watch the field in silence like philosophers in the corner of the dance hall. And yes, I said a wake of vultures. This is what you call a collection of the birds, a wake. It is, of course, an appropriate term because it communicates the inseparable connection between vultures and death. Vultures are the original death eaters. This is what the Mayans used to call them, death eaters. Now, vultures do not cause death. They are not predators. But they eat dead bodies and would, in fact, be happy to eat your dead body. Death is not their fault, but they certainly remind us of it. Living shadows, the darkest of birds, mementos mori. Now, you may be wondering, great, okay, but what do the vultures, where do they turn up in the Bible? A number of places, actually. In Deuteronomy 28, God lays out blessings for Israel when they obey the law of the covenant 
and God lays out curses for them when they disobey the law of the covenant. The curses chill the heart. Disaster, panic, and frustration. Stillbirths, dead land, pestilence, consumption, fever, inflammation, blight, and mildew, drought, and dust. Bewilderment of imagination and fear in the heart. These dark promises from God are capped off with this line. You shall become an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your corpses shall be food for every bird of the air. Israel, if you disobey the covenant, your corpses shall be food for birds. That is, vultures. Then, as now, vultures are what they have in mind when they talk about birds eating dead bodies. In the ancient Near East, promising someone an improper burial, or even worse, promising someone no burial at all, was the worst possible curse you could throw at somebody. And this line shows up again and again in Scripture. Goliath, none other than Goliath, taunting David just before he gets clocked by the rock on the forehead, says to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air. The prophet Hosea, in a sharp rebuke of Israel for its waywardness, declares to the, to the nation, Set a trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have broken my covenant and transgressed my law. Vultures, as you know, often circle when they spy encroaching death, and they wait. It seems that Hosea knew of this. In Revelation, birds eat the flesh of the condemned and dead beast. Even Jesus associates vultures with death, loss, and calamity. In Luke 17, he speaks to his disciples about the end times and the coming of the kingdom of God. He speaks of troubling, apocalyptic images of disorder and great suffering. One of the disciples, afraid, asks him, Where, Lord, where will all this happen? All this disorder, all this loss, all this calamity. To which Jesus answered, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. As if to say, you'll know it when you see it. Clearly, vultures are trouble in the Bible. Clearly, wakes, curses, disease, cataclysm, darkness, strife, loss, and brooding above all of it, the specter of death. But, let us take a deep breath and step back and think about vultures scientifically, historically, and finally, again, scripturally. Scientifically, vultures are not, are, 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 are not only true wonders, but they are also uniquely valuable creatures. They are among nature's greatest purifying machines, if not, nature, if not the very greatest of nature's purifying machines. They rid the world, where we live, all of us, of rotting remains that would otherwise spread disease to nearly every other creature. They stand in the way. They stand in line 
between death and us, sickness and us. They protect us and other creatures. Michael Stein of the Audubon Society writes it this way, by the time vultures make a meal of carrion, bacteria have already started the process of breaking down the carcass. This releases chemicals that are toxic for most creatures, but not for the vulture. Like us, they have bacteria on their skin and faces and in their intestines, but their bacteria is heavy duty. It's different. Flesh-eating fusobacteria and highly toxic clostridia, to name but two. Once the dead flesh is ingested by the bird, immensely powerful acids in the vulture's gut begin digesting the flesh so thoroughly that they even destroy the prey's DNA. But this dynamic digestive system destroys only some toxic microbes. It filters out others and concentrates them in the intestines. And vultures not only tolerate this deadly bacterial brew, but they put it to work. They use it, extracting nutrients from food. In other words, vultures use the bacteria from the food they eat to help them digest the food they eat. One species of old world vulture, the truly miraculous bird called the bearded vulture or lammergeier, lives almost like 90% of its diet comes from bones. It lives, essentially lives entirely off of bone. Historically, vultures have in many times and many places been revered and highly honored. The Mayans, who I've already mentioned, saw vultures as godlike because of their ability to absorb death and rid it of its toxicity. They absorb death. Ancient Egyptians saw a goddess called Nekbet, an enormous protective mother god who could enfold the world in her wings and who gave birth to all that is. That's what the Egyptians saw when they saw the vulture, a goddess, protective, life-giving. In fact, the Egyptians believed that the vulture ex existed only in female form. There were only female vultures in their minds, a fact made possible because you cannot distinguish male from female vultures without looking super close, like medically close. From, a, from any distance at all, even even from a close distance, you can't tell the difference apart. You've got to look, you've got to look really closely to tell the difference. Vultures, in the views of the ancient Egyptians, became pregnant, not from male vultures because male vultures didn't exist. They became pregnant by opening their mouths wide in flight, and allowing the fresh flowing wind to animate new life within them. Now this belief, which sounds so odd to us, persisted in various forms and cultures throughout the centuries and shows up in medieval bestiaries. I don't know if you know what a bestiary is, a bestiary is, but it's basically a, sort of an illustrated compendium of animal lore. You know, kind of like our field guides today. And one of these medieval, be these medieval bestiaries, uh, you know, featured the vulture. 
And they looked at the vulture as a symbol of the Virgin Mary, who also gave birth without the aid of a male. They inherited the belief of the Egyptians. The Aberdeen bestiary asks, what can they say? Those who are accustomed to ridiculing our priests when they hear that a virgin conceived, what can they say? They consider impossible for Mary, the mother of God, what is not denied as possible for vultures. Scripturally, new avenues of thought might be opened by considering the Hebrew word nesher, N-E-S-H-E-R, is our transliteration of it. Most English Bibles translate this word as eagle, nesher, when it shows up in the Old Testament Hebrew original language translated to eagle. But in the words of author Debbie Blue, most scholars agree that griffin vulture is at least an alternative, if not a more fitting translation to eagle. Now the griffin vulture was and still is today a common permanent resident of the Holy Land. It's huge, nine foot wingspan. It lives other places too, but it was very common then in the Holy Land as it is today. What if, as vultures became more loathsome to us English speakers, we began to translate out the vultures, even if they were the better choice? What I'm asking is, what happens when we transform and when we change the word eagle in the Old Testament to vulture? In Deuteronomy 32, we would find, as a vulture stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided Jacob. In Psalm 103, we would find this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the vultures. In Exodus 19, we would find, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God speaking to Moses, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on vultures' wings and brought you to myself. In Proverbs 30, we would find three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of a vulture in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a woman. And in Isaiah 40, finally, we would find, even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like vultures. Now, the jolt is real. It's palpable. I get it. We are not used to thinking of vultures like this. Kind of my point. 
But why do we do it? Three reasons I can think of. Number one, because we can. The Bible is not a code to be cracked with a single meaning for everybody at all times. We are not confined to single readings of it. We can be as creative in our approach to Scripture as God is creative in his approach to us. Two, second reason, we have good reason to believe that in at least some of these cases, Vulture is likely to actually be a better interpretation. And the third reason that we can throw Vulture in there is that the theological implications of such an interpretation are worth considering. Now, Vulture is likely to be the correct interpretation in these passages because in all cases, the author is referring to soaring flight. Get that, soaring flight. Eagles are high-precision flyers, technically highly adept and able to quickly hone in on moving targets. That's eagles now. Eagles are high-precision flyers, technically adept and able to quickly hone in on moving targets but they are not noted for their ability to soar. They do soar, some, but they're not noted for that. Vultures, however, are absolute, without question, masters of high flight. Most birds remain about below about 500 feet, but vultures routinely reach altitudes of 10,000 feet or more. The highest confirmed bird flight of any kind ever was recorded in 1973 when an airliner collided with a griffin vulture over North Africa. This is a griffin vulture, the same one suggested by the Hebrew word nesher. That bird was flying 38,000 feet, which is nearly two miles higher than Mount Everest. They reached this height not by effort, not by sheer effort or by flapping their wings, but by riding the wind without effort. They, they ride on rising columns of air called thermals. They spiral up and up and up. There are regions of warm rising air. Eagles do this also, but are not, ne not nearly so often, or so many, or so conspicuously. It's kind of a vulture specialty. The easy, effortless, buoyant flight of the vultures stands in contrast to the aggressive, powerful, tightly focused flight of the eagle. And it suggests, if we take this as an image of God, it suggests a God who is more like Jesus of Nazareth than Zeus on Mount Olympus. More like Jesus, that is, who trusted the Spirit of God to take him where he needed to go. The wind of God to take him where he needed to go. And less like Zeus, you know, Zeus, muscle, a lot of raw power, high atop his mountain, scoping for unsuspecting, unsuspecting targets. That's more eagle-like. Eagle is more like Zeus, vulture, more like the God that we Christians know. Finally, the theology of vultures invites us to question our idea of beauty, which is, let's face it, y'all, culturally defined and nearly totally arbitrary, our notions of beauty. As you may have noticed, many of my midweek Bible festivals here are marked by a theme. 
a thing we might call turning the world upside down. Now, please note, this was the Israelites' theme and Jesus' theme long before I came around, and it will be the theme of the Christian faith long after I'm gone. Turning the world upside down, that's what I'm trying to do here. Here again, we might remember that just as Jesus extolled the virtues of the least of these, just as Jesus extolled the meek, those who mourn, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, just as he extolled those who make peace and those who are poor, so maybe he would find beauty in what the world has called ugly. Vultures, I haven't spent much time on the physical description of vultures, but I'm telling you, by our standards, standards of beauty, they are not pretty. They're ugly. So maybe Jesus would find beauty in what we have called ugly. The lesson of the vulture is this. To see beauty in new places, you don't need to fool yourself. You don't need to force yourself to believe in something that is not true. You don't need to force yourself to love what is hateful. You just need to dig deeper. Take a little time to ask yourself what beauty is. Pay attention to the world and take the risk of loving something unusual, like a vulture. Our labels for things, beautiful, ugly, winner, loser, normal, weird, these may be more harmful than they are helpful. Jesus, who loved the sick, who loved the poor, the naked, the weirdos, the winners, the widows, the healthy, the orphans, the tax collectors, the imprisoned, the free, sinners all, loved them all. Surely he had little need for such categories as beautiful and ugly, winner and loser, normal and weird. Maybe we could do without those categories ourselves. Vultures are common here in Georgia. Experience tells me that a little more than half the time you see a bird soaring overhead, you know, high overhead like a large bird of prey, about more than maybe 60% of the time, it's a vulture. About 75% of those are turkey vultures, and about 25% of those are black vultures. But there's lots of vultures. You've seen them, whether or not you know it, all the time. If you ever have seen a bird soaring overhead in Georgia, it was probably a vulture. So when you're out with a dog, out with a friend, maybe you're driving on the interstate or walking across the grocery store parking lot, and you see a bird soaring high, or birds. Vultures like to, they're very social birds. They like to be together. If you see birds soaring high, remember the vulture. Remember to risk loving something or someone that the world has forgotten or rejected or labeled as ugly. Next time you look up and see a bird flying high overhead, remember to love something unusual. That's it for this week. Love you all. I'll see you next time. Next week, we're going to talk about ravens. See you next time. Amen.